Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In Chapter 53, Lydia and Wickham head off, seemingly unchanged by everything that has happened. Mrs. Bennett is crushed that they've left, but her spirits are a bit buoyed by the fact that news has arrived. Bingley is coming back to town. We hear in this scene almost the exact same conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett that we got at the beginning of the novel about whether or not Mr. Bennett is willing to go and visit Bingley upon his arrival. The fight doesn't need to be resolved, though, because before there's even a chance for a visit, Bingley shows up at the Longbourn door, and he's not alone. He's got Darcy with him. When they get inside, Darcy is awkward and silent. Mrs. Bennett is embarrassing, and Mr. Bingley is sweet and stealing glances at Jane. Here is Deidre Lynch on the whole affair. I mean, what's so interesting about those chapters, right, is the way in which they return us to where we were at the very beginning of the novel, and we start to feel like, oh my God, this is stuck. We're just playing over again what we played out the first time, that we're once again having Mrs. Bennett ruin everything by being too obvious. Mr. Darcy is again being sullen. We feel like the plot isn't advancing, that instead it's a cycle, and we're just going to play the same story of frustrated hopes over and over and over again. But there is one thing changed, and that's Lizzie. Far from hating Mr. Darcy, far from the days of thinking of him as a rude man who had wrongly stolen from Wickham, she watches him with a close eye. She is clearly in love with him. But is he still in love with her? He doesn't give any sign. Bingley and Darcy both leave after a stilted and awkward reunion, but Mrs. Bennett secures their coming back for a dinner party. Chapter 54 is that dinner party. Jane and Bingley sit next to each other, warming up, but Lizzie and Darcy sit on opposite ends of the table. Lizzie desperately wants to talk to Darcy, to catch his glance, to tell him that she knows everything that he did for Lydia and therefore for her family and that she's grateful. Darcy is still giving Lizzie nothing. She plays games with herself. If he doesn't come and talk to me by X time, then I will never pine for him again. It's torturous for Lizzie, but we understand her longing despite the pain of it. Darcy has revealed himself to potentially be worthy of this kind of brooding. Here is Aisha Ramachandran on part of why Lizzie is longing for Darcy so much in these chapters. So I think that what's so powerful about Darcy is that 
prototype and an archetype for a certain kind of romantic hero is that he suggests the possibility of individual agency that goes against social norm, right? And so I think so much of the novel is about what is the possibility for an individual to act according to their own desires, according to the freedom of how they want to be in the world, right? Versus the kind of constant drumbeat of social norm and social constraint. And Darcy is really powerful because he goes against his own social interests, right? I mean, he does exactly the sort of thing he's not supposed to do. And so he creates the possibility and the hope that we can escape social constraint. And even those who are not constrained, especially those who are not constrained by society, the wealthy, the entitled, the privileged, if they are the ones who choose differently, then everybody can choose differently, right? So there's a kind of utopian possibility that's built into the figure of Darcy that I think brings with it this kind of aspiration that's not just romantic. I think it's actually more powerfully political in a certain way, right? If the wealthy act differently, then the rest of us have hope too. And that's the power, I think, of the Darcy figure. Lizzie, in looking at Darcy, is looking at a man she loves, but she's also looking at the potential of a kind of freedom. She will be financially free, but she will also be partnered with someone who is open to non-normative ways of walking through the world. With Darcy, all preconceived notions are up for debate, and Lizzie finds that thrilling. She can see an expansive life with him. Still, the dinner is mostly disappointing and awful. Lizzie only manages to get a few words out of Darcy, but one good thing comes from this dinner party. It is clear, at least to Lizzie, that Bingley is as in love with Jane as ever. Jane doesn't see it, but Lizzie does and is thrilled for her sister. In Chapter 55, Bingley comes back to Longbourn alone. Mrs. Bennet is so intensely obvious and awkward that Bingley has to come back two more times in order to finally get up the courage to propose. But it happens. He proposes, Jane says yes, and you get the impression that there is a true match here. Even Mr. Bennett approves, first with sincerity, but then, of course, with mockery. And Mrs. Bennett, it must be said, was right, too. Bingley was indeed in want of a wife. Here is Roxanne Eberly on why this Jane Bingley match would be so exciting both in the novel and in the time. She won't take advantage of him and he won't take advantage of her, which is going to be the danger, right? I'm always so disturbed because she is beautiful, which makes the world dangerous for Jane. You know, Mrs. Bennett's, oh, when she was just how old, like 14 or some, you know, ridiculously young age, although, you know, Lydia's only, what, 15, um, you know, a man fell in love with her and wrote her these verses. That's very disturbing from, I think, our perspective, but the text seems to suggest it was disturbing in the period itself. Jane's beauty makes her vulnerable. Bingley's goodness makes him vulnerable that's part of their privilege. Like that's their extra special privilege is this beautiful woman and this naive but wealthy man managed not to get taken advantage of in this world, which is pretty dangerous, which is littered with Wickham's and other red-coated, you know, seducers. Bingley and Jane have a true happily ever after. They will be separate from the scary version of the world. Lizzie, on the other hand, makes a joke that she's going to have to start looking for another version of Mr. Collins. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. 
And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, we're getting toward the end here, but there are still things that we can learn in the Pride and Prejudice universe. What do you have for us today? Well, so this may feel like a minor thing, but it's the sort of thing that I feel like I've been faking my knowledge of for so long that let's just do it, which is Michaelmas. Amen. How many times have I been like, of course, it's Michaelmas. Everyone knows what Michaelmas is. The fact is, I did not know what Michaelmas was. So why does this matter? Well, Austin could have set this book during any period of the year. And instead, what she chooses to do is have Bingley arrive and everything kick off around Michaelmas. And here we are. It is Michaelmas yet again with another Bingley arrival. So Michaelmas would happen on the 29th of September every year. And, you know, it actually has a pre-Christian history, which the ancient Celtic people divided the year into four major quarters, you know, according to the equinoxes or the solstices. This is the one that's the fall equinox or adjacent. So it's also the end of the harvest season. It's when a whole new cycle of hiring farmhands and farming would occur. It's when Winter was about to start coming. It was a really significant time. It's the reason that we have the school year begin around September. It's the reason that we have legal and financial years begin around September. It's all around this notion of Michaelmas. And so it is a time of great change. And it is also a time with a focus on money. There was a saying, eat a goose on Michaelmas Day, want not for money all the year. And of course, This story began with the crisis about money, right? The entail approaching and the need to marry the daughters off so that there will be money. And here we are, even after the Wickham tragedy, we have Jane and Bingley, finally a marriage that is going to be financially desirable for the family and one that will protect the family because it was the time of encroaching darkness. It was seen that that it was a time of possible protection. St. Michael was one of the main angel warriors. He was the archangel who fought against Satan and evil. And so encouraging protection during this time is important. And I think that this is very much what Bingley represents. Fascinating. Did you know what Michaelmas was? Was I the only person who was like, yeah, Michaelmas, sure. And it's in every Jane Austen novel. I don't know if that's true, but I feel like Michaelmas comes up constantly. And I'm always like, I don't know. It's probably the day before Christmas. Whatever. (laughs) Christian stuff. No, it's so helpful. And I love this idea that like Bingley is the goose that everyone eats on Michaelmas, (laughs) right? Like we know that he comes over for a big meal around Michaelmas. And so they're going to prosper. I love it. I mean, this is also like the most important season in Judaism, I'll just say. It's when it's the high holidays and then Sukkot. And so it's right like this time of harvest, of reaping what you have sown. And I love that the novel, it turns out, has taken place almost over the course of exactly one year and that these chapters look a lot like the beginning chapters of the novel. Something Deidre Lynch pointed out, something that Tara Menon warned us about when we interviewed her months and months ago, that sort of structurally in terms of dialogue, that's how it works. 
And so there is that feeling of the years of like, so much is the same, so much is different at the same time. Yeah. And something that's really interesting, I think, about a book that chooses a year cycle as its structure is... As one of my favorite books does, This Is All I Got by Lauren Sandler. So yes, my last book chose very explicitly to use a year as a cycle. And on the one hand, it felt like a gimmick. And on the other hand, it's a gimmick for a reason, right? We have conventions for a reason because they're an incredible opportunity to see how much changes and how much doesn't. It gives us a chance to sort of settle up our accounts. And I mean, just back to the idea of Michaelmas, like I love that she chose a time that's like, okay, here we are. This is when people are going to get hired. This is when the the budgets are going to be reassessed. This is when we figure out where we have come. And so she's really beginning at this process in the book to, to settle up those accounts with everyone, right? Like we just saw Lydia married, but Lydia as Lydia, unchanged. We are seeing Mrs. Bennett very, very much as we met her in the beginning of the book here, right? She's just all a flutter and still completely fixated on the same things that she was initially for good reason, but in ridiculous manner. But Mr. Bennett, Mr. Bennett's really interesting here, right? Because we see him as someone who just like cannot be bothered by his wife's fluttering initially at the beginning of the book, who thinks that all of the conventions around marriage and expectations are absurd. All he wants to do is be alone in his library with maybe a wry word to Lizzie once in a while. But here we're seeing a very different Mr. Bennett. It's so interesting because I can't tell if he's different or not. So here's what the the paragraph says. So what happens is Mrs. Bennett makes a date, like a play date for Mr. Bennett and Mr. Bingley. So they get together to go hunting. And Mr. Bennett surprises us, but the text gives a funny justification. So I just want to read us this paragraph. It says, Bingley was punctual to his appointment and he and Mr. Bennett spent the morning together as had been agreed on. The latter, so Mr. Bennett, was much more agreeable than his companion expected. There was nothing of presumption or folly in Bingley that could provoke his ridicule or disgust him into silence, and he was more communicative and less eccentric than the other had ever seen of him. And so it's almost like, is Mr. Bennett changed or is Mr. Bingley that great? (laughs) You know, and and maybe that's new information to us. But the text does tell us like Mr. Bingley is just kind of great. And so Mr. Bennett couldn't think of anything bad to say. It is at minimum a new perspective of Mr. Bennett that we're given. I just don't know whether or not to be convinced that he's been changed. Well, it's also such a validation of Bingley, right? Like we think of Bingley as sort of, you know, this Ken doll that's just being posed in these rooms and moved around by Darcy as it fits him. And we know that Mr. Bennett is really picky about people. He only can tolerate the company of people who he actually wants to be around. And there's something about being liked by someone who doesn't like anyone, (laughs) which is it's just it's such a vote of confidence. But I also think that, you know, can you imagine the Mr. Bennett we meet last Michaelmas? 
even tolerating the play date, even tolerating Mrs. Bennett quite in her fidgets, you know, setting up this little shooting excursion to him. He would have just dismissed it and shut himself away, I imagine. And so the fact that he's willing to be present, that he's game and that he's taking the courtship of one of his daughters very seriously and i think probably carrying some some shame some guilt around the reason that he needs to do that it's hard to imagine that he has so completely swung back to the bennett we have met in the beginning yeah i mean i really want to see i know that austin gives us one of those endings that's like, and that's how this person ended up. And that's how this person ended up. And I think that Austin in this paragraph is leaving open the possibility that Mr. Bennett is changed. But I, I don't know if she's just like, if he's just like in this moment of a little bit of shame and worry. And so his behavior has changed for a little while, or if he is actually gonna stay a little, just a little more humble a little more active in his daughter's lives. Like, okay, like part of my responsibility as a father is to go hunting with a guy. And then if I can, to not be a jerk to him. But Austin, I think mostly leaves it ambiguous, right? Because there is nothing of presumption or folly in Bingley that could provoke Mr. Bennett's ridicule or disgust. If Collins showed up, I think Mr. Bennett would be hiding in his office. Probably. Though, who knows if Collins was showing up for Mary instead of Lizzie, you know, if if it was a question of of the appropriate arrangement. I mean, personally, I don't really want to see Mr. Bennett with all of his edges filed off. I love his personality. I just can't stand him as a father or a husband most of the time. So if he can figure out how to be him within a loving framework of the family. Completely. I mean, I don't think that we want any of these characters to lose the traits that make them unique and special. We don't necessarily want Austin's message here to be one of total conformity. We want to take away from this book the idea that one should be able to continue to be themselves, albeit in possibly a more mature, circumspect, and open way. And I think that we are definitely seeing that with Mr. Bennett. I am not convinced that we are definitely seeing it with Mr. Bennett, but I am open to the possibility that we are. Yeah, maybe Bingley's just lovely. I mean, Darcy loves him and Darcy doesn't like anyone. But I think it has felt for a while, though, like, why does everyone like Bingley so much? Totally. Oh, my God. This paragraph is without a doubt an endorsement of Bingley. He's just sort of beyond reproach, right? Which if someone is beyond reproach, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're like doing everything they can to get along. It means that there's a confidence there, that they don't say things that they don't know anything about. You really get a sense of a solidity to Bingley here that I love. And I think you see it in all three of these chapters. Should we talk about Bingley? I mean, that's definitely where love is in these chapters or you know, we see the Bingley Jane proposal, kind of. We see it from just outside the room. Isn't that great how she frames that shot? And we're just, yes. we're, we're watching their awkwardness and their excitement. It's so lovely, that that sort of moment of visual eavesdropping that she gives us. Yeah, it's very cinematic. It is very cinematic. But then, right, like Jane and Bingley are so overwhelmed with love for each other that whenever 
either of them can't be in one another's company. They are talking to Lizzie or Darcy about how much they love one another. Like they just can't get over how much they love each other, which actually leads to Jane in this question of how much she has changed, right? Because she has this return to her love of Bingley in this moment. She has been convinced that he never loved her and has been going out of her way to convince Lizzie that she's over him. But Jane sort of returns to, no, obviously I'm super in love with him now that I know that he loves me too. I couldn't be happier that we're engaged. And the only sign that we have that she is changed is she's like, I guess I won't be as close to his sisters as I had thought I would be. But like, that's as far as a bad word as we can get from her. So Cranky Lauren, who still exists somewhere underneath all of this happiness, is very mm. happy for Jane. Thank God. And is very happy for Bingley. And yet, like the fact that she has so thoroughly accepted that he has been so manipulated by all these people and has broken her heart to such a degree, it's a little neat for me. And I know that that is Jane's character, but it doesn't make me feel deeper affection for Jane. I think it's great that she's open to a love that is true for her. But the fact that it's just like, oh, Darcy was just doing his best and maybe the sisters aren't as lovely as I thought, but now everything worked out in the end and he's my man. There is some part of me that feels like, what about that nearly a year of brokenheartedness? What about the fact that you are marrying this man who's like so easily turned into a marionette, a cipher for other people's impressions and desires? Like, Part of me wishes that she was marrying someone who could take her by the shoulders and shake her just a little bit and say, wake up, honey. <laughs> it's a cruel world out there and I've been cruel to you. So let's just own what it is. But no, it just needs to be tied up in a bow. And that is, I think, part of why Lizzie says, I can never be as happy as you are. Yeah. Because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be truly good in this unadulterated way to feel real happiness. And I'm really curious what you think about that, about Lizzie's sort of assessment about what sort of character one needs to have in order to feel what Jane gets to feel here. I mean, I, I just think Lizzie is right. <laughs> and I think that we all get to feel different ranges of feelings and trying to change our character in some way does help. I think there are ways, right, like scientifically that we can rewire ourselves. I think enough things have happened to Lizzie in this year that she has sort of been rewired to some extent to not just think the most charming, cynical thought, but to think, oh, is this true before she's charming and cynical about the thought? But yeah, I think it's one of the sad things about life is like, I am never going to get to feel what it's like to stand in front of 10,000 people. Why am I saying 10,000, 100,000 people like Beyonce and feel like, ah, oh, I just crushed something. That is a feeling I'm never going to have. And I'm mostly fine with that feeling. And I will never feel the, the simple joy and love that Jane is going to feel because I'm sad even when happy things happen. You know, I so, do know. I really know. Yeah. So like, and, I, and I'm like happy for Jane, but I feel like Jane doesn't get to feel righteous indignation. And I love feeling righteous indignation. She doesn't laugh as much as Lizzie. 
I'm not saying it's all equal because I don't think it's all equal, but I think Jane will potentially be more heartbroken and crestfallen in the world when people betray her. But yeah, she gets to have a little bit more of that pure joy. And I just don't begrudge it for her. I do wonder if Austin is suggesting to us that happiness requires a certain type of simplicity and purity and that if you're going to be the smart one, that's what you don't get to have. If you're going to be the clever one, if you're going to be the one whose fine eyes sees the world clearly, that's what you lose in the bargain, which I think is sort of this age old question, right? Can we be smart and happy? I do think Austin is trying to figure out a question around that, which is if we are capable of change and growing as potentially, you know, Mr. Bennett has done, certainly as Lizzie and Darcy have both done to some extent as Jane has done, does that make us more capable of happiness, right? Can we change toward a happy life? And something that's so interesting to me about these chapters is the way that Lizzie is wondering and Jane is wondering and Mr. Bennett is wondering about second chances. This goes back to the, you know, renewal year question, right? Is Mr. Bennett going to go and introduce himself to Bingley this year? Is Bingley going to do it differently this year and not be dissuaded by his sisters, but actually propose? Yes, he will. He is changed. He is more confident. He is going to go after what he wants. And then there's the quote, Um, that we want to look at closely, which is Lizzie thinking, am I going to have a second chance? Is Darcy going to propose again? And the quote is, is there one among the sex who would not protest against such a weakness as a second proposal to the same woman? And the reason that I'm talking about that in conjunction with your question is, I think part of what keeps people from being happy sometimes is pride. And that is what this quote is about, is like, are you too proud to let yourself be happy? Are you too proud to propose to the same woman twice, which would be the thing that would make you happy? And so one of the things that I think Austin is arguing is that often intelligence and pride go together. I think that's true. I also think that Austin is letting us know that not only is a proposal something that is offered twice in these situations, but it's also received twice. And it is something that Lizzie is going to receive in a moment when she feels very differently about it than she did the first time. So it's going to require Darcy getting over his pride to propose again, but it's also going to require Lizzie growing enough and frankly being smart enough to be able to see that In growth and intelligence, there's the ability to recognize that your feelings might change as you become smarter, as you become more mature, and that it is okay to want something that you thought you initially didn't want. Right. You could be accepted on two terms or you could be rejected on two terms, right? It's not like an A-B test or well-run experiment because you're both variables. So in Darcy asking a second time, he's saying, I'm changed, which he could not be. Are you also changed? If you are changed, are you changed away from me further or away, you know, or further along that path? Because arguably, just if Darcy was changed and Lizzie was unchanged, that would be enough. And so there's, you know, always this gamble, I think, in relationships that you're talking about that, like, 
are are we changed enough in the same way for us to still be friends, for us to still be whatever? Why did you say no last time to go to the Bahamas with me? Was it really that you didn't have enough time or was it also a little financial or was it also a little bit that you didn't want to spend time with me? Right. Like we never we never really know. And it's interesting. It's where consent gets icky. Right. Because we want Darcy to ask the second time. But it was really annoying when Collins was like, I'm just going to keep asking because you're obviously going to say yes. Totally. It's also interesting, you know, we didn't get an initial full proposal from Bingley, of course, but, you know, but there's there's the desire that exists between Jane and Bingley at the beginning that is unchanged towards the end. And that's a simple one. Right. We knew that they wanted it then. We know that they want it now. That return is something that feels more assured. Darcy does not know that. And so there's the risk of a second proposal or the risk of a proposal that really may not receive an affirmative answer that do we consider it to be a weakness only if it's rejected? Do we consider it to be a strength only if it's accepted? And that's part of the stickiness of consent, too, I think, is Mm -hmm. when something is wanted, we have a very different way of framing it than when it's unwanted. Yeah, at least I tried is sometimes like a hero walking away from a rejection with a good attitude and sometimes like a harasser's justification. Right. And yeah, it's really hard to tell. And of course, what separates those two categories is the ability to listen and the ability to empathize and the ability to see a person as a unique person in a unique circumstance and not someone who is being led by conduct literature or rumor or what you want to project upon another person. He's interested in seeing Lizzie for herself right now. And that scares him. Yeah. But what's so hard about this is how much Lizzie has to wait for him to propose again. There's this great description. She wants to talk to him so much. She just wants to talk to him at all these different parties that they are in the same room at and gatherings. And and she's like, okay, I'm going to go talk. I'm going to go talk to him or maybe he's going to come up and talk to me. And this woman comes up to her and is like, I'm not going to leave your side for the rest of the day. And she's like, are you? freaking kidding me. And then Lizzie has to stay and pour the coffee. And so she can't go up to him and they get put at different whist tables. So she can't go up to him. The best she can hope to do is be like cute enough that he looks up from his cards enough that he'll play badly. Like that is the most agency that she has here. And so as much as Darcy even wants to listen, she is just stopped from saying anything. And then there's they finally get to talk and like the only thing society allows them to talk about is like, how's your sister? (laughs) And so I feel like you really feel the tension of the time that she can't go up to him and pull him by the arm and be like, can I talk to you for just one minute? Oh my God, everything that you did for Lydia, you completely changed my life. And I'm so grateful. And I noticed how much you're changing, you know, all of that, that would give him more of an inkling that a second proposal is welcome. None of that is there. And so, of course, he doesn't offer it easily. He doesn't want to be the stalking asshole. He wants to be like, I heard you. I respected your wish. And the potential for miscommunication that these bullshit conventions of the time not just permit, but practically require, right? I mean, what has he got to go on? And what 
other person in this situation would say, she's giving me nothing. She's already said no once. Come on, man, get over it. She clearly doesn't love you. Go back to London. Go back to Pemberley. She's just not that into me. Exactly. Which means like this great love story, this possibility for happily ever after whatever that means, you know, is something that that is hanging in like such a precarious balance here and takes so much courage. Yeah. I mean, think of all of the loves that that never could be because you were stuck at different whist tables. (laughs) Or the same gender before it was socially acceptable. I mean, all the loves that couldn't be for just social reasons. Forget cancer and war, right? Just like idiotic social conventions. Sure. And, you know, Elizabeth's pouring out the coffee and that person comes up to her and what she says is, the men shan't come and part us. I am determined. We want none of them, do we? And in the right context, if you do want none of them, if all you want is that woman standing next to you while you're pouring the coffee, what better words to hear? And yet in this situation, it's just like, actually, for once in my life, I want the man to part us. I would love to see Lizzie turn to this woman and be like, usually I'm totally on board. Absolutely. This is not a you thing. It turns out that this man just did something really radical and I have to go talk to him about it. I would read that book too. I love this book, but I would also love that book. Well, Lauren, next episode, we are going to be discussing the one quote that I would really tattoo onto my body, which is obstinate, headstrong girl chapter. We have what to me, you know, is is one of the most delicious chapters to possibly discuss in this book right up in front of us. The Lady Catherine Showdown. And Lizzie is going to bring it. And I know you are, too. Oh, my God. I love it. I love it so much. Okay, it's class. It's power. It's age. It's love. I can't wait. I can't wait. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. (laughs) 
So this question of second chances, which we've talked about a bit this week, is one that could use some scholarly wisdom. What was being preached at the time about second chances and about forgiveness, about evolving in relationships? I don't know, but I have a hunch that Laura White does. She's written three books on Austin, but one of those books is on Austin's Anglicanism. She's a professor in the English department at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And let's get her on the phone. Hi, Laura. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad that you joined us because we just read Bingley's proposal. We just read about Lizzie wondering if Darcy will ever come back to ask again. And we were really wondering about what what the thinking was in this age and specifically what the thinking was in terms of what was being preached about what one should be open to, one should think about second chances. This is the novel that does have second chances. The one most preeminently with second chances would be Persuasion, right? Where our heroine is completely given up and thought it's impossible. Whereas Elizabeth is not 27, right? She's still as young and she still has some possibilities. It's the structure of the novel, partly, that lets us know that second chances are possible. It's the question of where these chapters come in the book. As a theological issue, second chances are an absolute necessity because Christianity, Anglican Christianity, to which Austin subscribed, assumes redemption. Of course, that's on a cosmic scale. That is, things can go very badly in actual life. And from a Christian perspective, that doesn't really matter because it's the second chance of after death, right? Christianity does not promise you that you get a happy marriage, for instance. Can you help us imagine what Darcy would have heard preached in church and how that might relate to this evolution in himself and with Lizzie as far as second chances go? Yes, it's not just what he would have heard in church. Anglicanism is a liturgical religion, Will you tell us what that means, what a liturgical religion is? Uh, it is a set structure of readings and prayers. Basically, you have to start with the readings, which are something from the Old Testament, um, the Psalms, a psalm, something from the New Testament, and then the gospel. And then the sermon is follows thereafter. And the sermon is supposed to particularly reflect upon the gospel but also drag in, if, if possible, the other readings that have been made thus far to wrap it all into what you learned from hearing these readings from essentially an expert, right? That said, many sermons were not as fully morally compelling as you might expect because this was an age of a latitudinarian church. What does that mean, latitudinarian? It means that they had a lot of latitude about what was going on. You could be a scholar and a gentleman and a priest without having any deep, earnest, evangelical commitment to faith. And you see that in Austin's novels quite clearly. 
Mr. Collins, what kind of sermon did Mr. Collins give? Exactly. You could be neither a scholar nor a gentleman. (laughs) And you could be someone who believes that Lydia is someone who should never be able to set foot in her parents' house again. So I think it's so interesting that the the person we have delivering sermons in the book, and he does it mainly by letter, of course, to the Bennett household, is the person who's very much preaching against second chances. Absolutely, because he's not really a Christian. There's a doctrine in the Anglican Church, and it's also there in the Catholic Church, that sacraments can't be hurt by bad ministers that just because you get the bread and the wine from a real poop like Mr. Collins, it doesn't hurt the sacraments. But that doesn't keep Austin from making fun of him. Um, Not a bit, right? And so his second chances are he's trying to wheedle his way into a position after he realizes it's a done deal later in this novel. You have no idea what's going to happen, but it turns out that Darcy and Elizabeth get together. Which puts <laughs> no. Me- no, I know. Huh. Oh, perish the thought. Sorry, spoiler alert. But nonetheless, he immediately starts trying to do the worldly thing of maneuvering himself into the best position, which is just a comic kind of response, right? So he provides a burlesque of second chances. But they're real, and Austin believed they were real. The thing that was most important to her, I think, was her spiritual life. And the sins that she committed most, that she was most sorry for, were sins of being witty against other people. You could see why it would have been the one thing she would have done all the time, you know, just thought one malicious, horrible thing after another, because that's just how her mind worked, and then turned it into wit, and then realized, that's not very Christian of me, is that? No. It's all right when it's in a novel. It wasn't okay sometimes when it slipped out in real life. Her prayers show that that's the one sin she brings forward as something that she's working on, you know, keep us from malice, keep us from being rude to our neighbors, right? And you can see those as Christian sins. The very things we somehow enjoy the most about Austin are some of the things she knew she had to temper in her own actual life. I wonder if you feel like Austin's life in liturgy, Austin's life immersed in the storytelling of the church in its broadest sense, is part of how we ended up with Austin as a writer. Perhaps she knew, since she had daily and evening prayers, so two services on all the days of the week that people don't assume you go to services, right? Plus two full services, like three-hour services on Sunday. She would have had her mind soaked with the language of both the Old and the New Testament. The Anglican Church is so devised that they run through the entire Bible, leaving aside, oh, the genealogical tables and some other sorts of things that the church has always wanted to swish under the table. Like they don't do uh, what happens to Noah when he's gotten drunk and been seduced by his daughters-in-law. They leave that part out, right? That's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One totally understands it, but still, you know, they were they were after a little sexual decorum, right? <laughs> so I spent some time, actually, when I started on the book project, 
trying to think that maybe I could data mine the six novels. It's not a large amount of text, of course, but to see if I could find consonances with old, older New Testament language. And I soon realized that, no, I can't. She purposely refused to insert consciously biblical phrases into her text. And she did so for a very specific reason. She very much believed in religious decorum, that a novel was, for all of her defense of the genre, was not a sacred space. And therefore, it was not appropriate to be larding a novel with you know all sorts of evangelical statements about redemption or whatever. She didn't like, we know, Hannah Moore's Caleb's In Search of a Wife, which is extremely boring and extremely, oh, I do not recommend it, extremely preachy. But Austin, quite specifically, we have her saying at one juncture or another saying that this is not appropriate, that religious decorum would be violated, but also that it wouldn't work. She thinks that Hannah Moore's preachiness is more likely to turn people off of Christianity than involve them in it. Earlier in our season, we talked about Pride and Prejudice as a coming-of-age novel. And as you're describing Austin's relationship to her faith and Lizzie's character, I wonder if there's an element of Pride and Prejudice that you see as maybe Austin exploring her own coming of age and especially her coming of age in terms of her Christianity? I don't think Austin had what we would understand as a born again moment. She grew up in such an intensely religious household. She had training, I think her lifelong training was less in second chances than in managing disappointment. And The novels may have been one of the ways in which she managed disappointment because at some point she must have realized that she was far past even Anne Elliot's predicament, right? That there was not going to be a second bloom for her as far as in her real life, but that she did have this venue of writing stories where she could work out all of the bizarre and interesting issues that enter into the marriage market of her day and conceive for herself a kind of perfection. So that Pride and Prejudice is a form of her second chance, but also something of an acknowledgement of her not personally being able to have it. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Oh, I appreciate it very much. I'm always willing to talk Austin at a drop of a hat. So this is a lovely engagement. Thank you so much, Lauren. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. And thank you so much to everybody who joined us last month. We had a big Patreon push and it went so well. And we just love you all so much. Another reminder, please leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. It helps other people find us and that helps us make a living and we're grateful. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers are Ariana Nettleman and we are distributed by ACAST. We like to thank our Jane Level patrons, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, 
Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and we have benighted our two new patrons. So thank you to the Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth and Duchess Lauren Byer O'Connell of the Isle of Key Lime Pie. Thanks this week to Deidre Lynch, Aisha Ramachandran, Roxanne Everly, and Laura White for talking to us. Thanks as always, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com